Welcome to Imagined Tomorrow. This is a podcast where we imagine India's future through the lens of science and technology. In every episode we will explore a hypothetical future set in India and we will talk to experts and see how the journey to that future might play out keeping Indian realities in mind. I'm your host Shreya Das Gupta. In today's episode, we imagine a future where medical treatment is personalized for you. And what's more you than your DNA, your individual genetics? If you look around from your Facebook to your Instagram, Netflix or YouTube homepages, your digital world is increasingly being personalized for you based on your preferences and your individual data. What you see in your homepages looks very different from what your mother sees or what your partner does. What if Medical decisions were also customized for each one of us because when it comes to our DNA it is said that we humans are 99.9% identical but our DNA is massive more than 3 billion base pairs long which means that the remaining 0.1% still has more than 3 million base pairs so the variations there can make each one of us unique in some way the consequences of some of the genetic variations are visible and straightforward like your eye color or height or hair type some variations might even be meaningless but as researchers are finding out some variations in our genes influence our health they can determine whether we develop myopia or obesity cancer or some rare genetic condition some variations can even influence how our bodies break down and tolerate medicines would it then make sense for us to move to a future where medical decisions are personalized for our dna where treatments are matched to the genetic variations and mutations that we individually have personalized medicine is something that i hopefully will one day you know uh, save my life and the life of millions this is shambhavi ravi shankar a legal expert at ikigai law firm in delhi she lives with a rare genetic condition called allergel syndrome that can affect many different organs in the body from the liver and the heart to bones kidneys and eyes i frequently visit a pediatric hepatologist for my liver and a cardiologist those are my two mainstays but along the way i've had to look at i had to have had to consult a nephrologist which is for the kidney i've had to consult neurologists which is when i had you know massive spinal surgery i've had to consult ent professionals because of we have inner ear issues uh, dentists of course because our teeth get royally murdered by by the condition that we have and also I mean, there are cardiac complications as well if your teeth aren't in order. I've had to consult with a bunch of other people just here and there, like dermatologists, because you know we have really, really bad skin and hair. And I still see a pediatrician because continuity of care. It was only in 1997 that scientists in the U.S. confirmed that allergic syndrome had a genetic cause, that it occurred because of mutations in one of two specific genes. Okay, time for a crash course. Humans are made of trillions of cells. Inside each cell is our DNA, that long double helix ladder-like structure you might have seen pictures of. A small stretch of the DNA makes a gene. There are thousands of such genes in our DNA, and these genes contain the set of instructions to make proteins that influence how we grow and develop. The genes involved in allergic syndrome 
help an embryo develop into a fully functional baby. They code for proteins that tell the initial clump of cells how to neatly organize themselves into well-defined organs like the liver or the heart. And so when these genes have a mutation, the final organs can get a bit confused and not develop as they should. Now, although the condition has a genetic basis, Shambhavi's initial diagnosis did not come from a genetic test. It took a few years before her parents had an answer. I was diagnosed in the mid-90s and so at that time there was no genetic testing in India whatsoever and, and also the awareness that something as, as chronic, meaning that it affects multiple organs and it's an everyday kind of disease, could have genetic origins was also quite minimal. So I was diagnosed maybe five, I was five and a half or six when I would have got my diagnosis and even that was not personalized in the sense that it it I didn't have a genetic test. Uh, it was just based on the facio and, you know, the biopsies and the blood work and, and you know, putting little, little bits and pieces together and saying, okay, this is this is the overall condition she has. Um, and, and I think the delay uh, caused a lot of issues in terms of my growth, in terms of my development, my nutrition, a whole bunch of other things. Eventually, Shambhavi did confirm her diagnosis with a genetic test. But the treatment that individuals with allergic syndrome receive is still generic. There are old repurposed medicines to manage some of the symptoms and surgery when things get more serious. So what would it take to have a specific treatment plan? One that addresses the driver of the condition, that is, the genetic mutation that each individual has and how that then influences the organs and various symptoms. Allergen is a very complex disease in that it affects so many organs, uh, at least five organ systems. So where do you start? You know, like they've identified the two genes that typically call the two mutations that typically cause the disease. But to go beyond that and to correlate genotype and phenotype, which is the way the gene is structured to how that affects in terms of a symptom for you, is where it has not happened even in the US. Like they, I can't tell you that if you have one gene, you're going to have three types of symptoms. I cannot tell you that and neither can scientists. And so when you're when you're starting from you know that kind of ground up where you really have to go deep into the gene, you have to go deep into the way it works, you have to really interact with patients of different symptoms and variants. Until you've been able to do that, I I, I don't see, you know, maybe it will come. Who knows? For now, allergen syndrome is a hard nut to crack. But our hypothetical future of personalized medicine might soon become a reality for another rare genetic condition one that affects tens of thousands of boys in India. Wait, hold on. I know it's recording, but let me go out. There's a little less. This is Bertie Ashley speaking with me from a small lab in North Bangalore. Yeah, I'm a molecular geneticist. That is my official uh, title. And I work with the Dystrophy Annihilation Research Trust. Uh, very interestingly, one of the very few organizations that have the word annihilation in it and has some good cost behind it. Usually it's some rap or heavy metal group. Dystrophy Annihilation Research Trust, or DART, was created by parents of children who have a genetic condition called Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, or DMD. So what is DMD? Muscles help us move and function. And as our muscles contract and expand, a protein called dystrophin helps keep our muscle fibers in place. Think of it as a muscle shock absorber. In DMD, the gene that codes for this dystrophin protein has a mutation. So the cells don't make enough or any working dystrophin. And without dystrophin, muscles keep getting damaged and progressively weaker as the child grows older. Till few years back, till 2004-2005, there was absolutely no relief or hope 
for families who had children suffering with DMD. Uh, it is a fatal disease. By the, uh, the progression of the disease is normally by the age of 2 or 3, they have difficulty getting up. Uh, by the age of 6 or 7, they would need crutches. By the age of 12 or 14, you need a wheelchair. And by 19 or 20, uh, they are almost bedridden. And around 25, 26 is when your most important muscles, the heart and the lungs, the pulmonary and the cardiac muscles, they give up. The lifespan is considerably short. It's only about like maximum 25, 26. And because of the genetic mutation, there is not much you can be done about it. We usually see DMD in boys. This is because the dystrophin gene occurs on the X chromosome. Now, our DNA is split across 46 chromosomes in total. 23 of these inherited from the biological mother and 23 from the biological father. Since chromosomes occur in pairs, we typically have two copies of each gene. The only set of chromosomes that do not necessarily occur in a matching pair is the sex chromosome. Girls typically have two X chromosomes, so if there's a mutation in one gene on the X chromosome, the other copy can make up for it. Boys have one X and one Y. So if there's a problem with the gene on the X chromosome, they can't usually do much about it. So, DMD is a genetic condition and it mainly affects boys. And not a few, but a fairly large number of boys in India. Now, uh, it is a rare disease according to the World Health Organization, because it occurs in, uh, in 1 in 3,500 live male births, right? So, technically, that makes it a rare disorder. Now, 1 in 3,500 in Europe and the US is rare, accepted, because they have towns where the entire population is 3,500. In Bangalore, 3,500 is the number of people who live in half a street, right? And just by taking that into consideration, we already know the frequency is quite high because of our population. For many years, the treatment for DMD has included physiotherapy and steroids. These help ease symptoms by improving muscle strength to an extent, but they don't address the underlying cause, a mutation within the dystrophin gene that prevents dystrophin from being made. So Bertie and his colleagues are now thinking of the future. They're working on a treatment that targets the genetic mutation and coaxes cells to make some form of working dystrophin protein. And this therapy is called exon skipping. Everybody knows DNA and genes, but inside a gene uh, are things called exons and introns. Uh, they're basically small bits of information uh, which are all linked together. And the coding bits of it are called exons and the non-coding bits are called introns. If you think of assembling the dystrophin protein as putting together a jigsaw puzzle, each exon codes for one piece of the puzzle. The dystrophin gene has 79 such exons and is in fact one of the longest known human genes. So the team starts by first figuring out which exon the problem lies in. This is easy to do these days with what is called next generation sequencing or NGS. So uh, next generation sequencing just a few years back, probably when I was in college, was this big thing, you had to spend lakhs of rupees and only the biggest companies in the world had it and the US were like, we have three NGS not. In the last 15 years, it's become really, really cheap. It has become quite abundant. Like in the street I am working on right now, there are three companies that do NGS and they charge only about 25 to 30,000 rupees per uh, genome scan. Say the NGS test finds that exon number 52 within the dystrophin gene is missing. So when a cell in our body tries to put the dystrophin protein together, it goes from exon 1, then exon 2, 
exon 3 all the way to exon 51 and then the reading mechanism comes half in like bro what's happened that like there's a there's a stop i don't know what to do and it stops so the dystrophin is not produced and thereby comes duchenne muscular dystrophy but instead of just stopping and not making a dystrophin protein what if you could skip over the problem areas and trick the cell into making a shorter protein that's what bertie and his colleagues do through exon skipping say exon number 52 is missing and exon number 51 cannot join exon number 53 because they don't quite fit together so the team uses small pieces of dna called antisense oligonucleotides to mask exon number 53 so that exon number 51 can join the next exon that fits it the best it's a jigsaw puzzle right but the point is if you don't have half of the jigsaw puzzle you don't even know what the picture is and it stopped somewhere so you don't have half what we do is we take out the next jigsaw puzzle that's also missing okay and somehow we put the whole puzzle together with a small gap in the middle so you might not have a full puzzle but now you look at it and okay it looks like a cat with a hole in the middle earlier you could see it just had like a tail and a leg it could be a cat or it could be a dog or it could be a beaver but now you have a somewhat of semi functional idea of what the product is if not fully functional and that's better right instead of just having a completely dysfunctional protein this way muscle cells can start producing some working dystrophin so while dystrophin levels won't get to 100% the therapy has the potential to restore some amount of dystrophin in the cells so that dmd progresses more slowly and the child can live a better quality of life now in theory you could target every exon that has a problem using exon skipping and the us food and drug administration or the fda has already approved at least 3 such exon skipping drugs targeting 3 different exons but these drugs are prohibitively expensive this is why the dart team thinks it's crucial to develop the therapy in india and in 2019 they received permission from the indian drug regulator to test the therapy in one child so the very first clinical trial of this was done on one boy in 2019 uh in november and we are still studying its effects and we are seeing really good uh data from it if you were to see the dystrophin levels in these kids it goes from 20 to 18 to 16 slowly keeps coming down if it stops that's all at well and good but in our case we are we were thrilled to see there was a 0.4% increase in dystrophin production it's not just the amount of dystrophin but the child himself feels an improvement too Although Bertie says this is difficult to attribute to the therapy itself. For example, the patient said that earlier he couldn't uh, roll in his sleep. He used to call his mom and dad every two hours and say, "Can you move me to the left? Can you move me to the right?" Uh, and uh, he goes to college and he couldn't write for more than like an hour or so. And now he says he can write for two hours. He's been able to write exams and he's doing his exams. And he hasn't called his mom or dad to roll him over in the sleep. now his mom and dad say that is imp- that is you know for us that is huge for us but since that is not scientifically empirical data as a researcher i also have to think maybe he is also psychologically compelled to do this maybe he could do earlier he didn't choose to do it now he is doing it maybe that's what's pushing him that is what i'm thinking in my brain but the other side of me is saying like maybe it works yeah <laughs> of course data from one person isn't enough there's lots to figure out for example how much does dystrophin level increase in say 2 years does it go up in all kids does restoring some form of working dystrophin in cells translate to better body movement does the therapy introduce side effects that were unaccounted for 
The team is on its way to find these answers in a larger clinical trial. We showed the results to ICMR and DCGI. ICMR is the Indian Council of Medical Research, which oversees all biomedical research in India. And the DCGI is the Drugs Controller General of India, who grants approvals to clinical trials for all new medications and treatments that companies want to sell in the country. And they were quite impressed and they've now given the go-ahead for 117 uh, children uh, in which we want to target multiple exons, uh, different styles. And we also want to figure out if we can do it from different parts of the country instead of doing just in Bangalore. So we have Delhi, Tamil Nadu and everything like that. So that's what's happening next. So. Exon skipping drugs in the US cost more than $300,000 or more than 2 crore rupees per year. But DART has brought down the cost of the treatment to about 15 lakhs per year for the initial clinical trials at least, mainly because the research is being pushed by DMD patients and their caregivers themselves. When I said it's 15 lakhs per year, we have brought it down. That doesn't mean we are able to make the component 15 lakhs per year. Our component is still going to take 20 to 35 lakhs a year, right? But we are able to subsidize the cost because we figure out there are some things that we can do ourselves uh, the usual Indian Jugaad thing. And there are also a few things that we can put it with other uh, compounds as well, other antisense compounds as well. And only the the final bits of personalization is made to a particular uh, patient. So there are a few things that we are doing. But other than that, financially, it, like if you, are in, if you want to start a personalized medicine uh, company, unless you have uh, patients who are willing to shell out tons of money, it is not going to make financial sense at all. DART could pave the way for personalized medicine for people with rare genetic conditions in India. But in the hypothetical future we are exploring, personalized medicine could help every single one of us, both to determine what treatment will work best for us and also what won't. The following section talks about infant death. Listener discretion is advised. I want to shift the focus to the US for a moment. In April 2005, a woman gave birth to a healthy male baby. She was prescribed some painkillers for her postpartum pain and discharged from the hospital. The painkillers helped her a lot. But on day 7, she noticed that her baby was having difficulty in breastfeeding. When this continued, she stored some breast milk in bottles and froze them. But on day 12, the baby had grey skin and by day 13, he had died. Investigation found that the baby's blood had extremely high levels of morphine. So did the mother's stored breast milk. So what had happened? The painkiller that the mother had been prescribed contained codeine. By itself, codeine is a weak painkiller. But when it enters the body, an enzyme metabolizes part of it to morphine. It's the morphine that brings relief from pain. The gene that codes for the enzyme determines how much codeine gets converted to morphine. Majority of people have two active copies of the genes that make them normal metabolizers. So they convert about 5-10% to 10 of the codeine into morphine while the rest is removed from the body. A small proportion of people lack active copies of the gene and produce much less morphine. They are poor metabolizers. On the other extreme are people who have three or more copies of the gene and make a much higher level of morphine. They are ultra-rapid metabolizers. The mother, it turned out, was an ultra-rapid metabolizer. 
The painkiller did help her pain immensely, but the excess morphine turned toxic for her child. In 2007, a year after researchers published this case study in the journal Lancet, the US FDA issued a warning on codeine use by nursing mothers. Codeine-based medication is also prescribed to children, and various global health agencies have issued warnings against it. Just like the enzyme metabolizing codeine, variations in our genes determine how our body metabolizes a vast range of medicines, from antidepressants to anti-allergy medicines, from diabetes medication to painkillers. Researchers study this in what is called pharmacogenomics. And if you've ever felt that a certain medicine that seems to help everyone else doesn't quite work for you, then maybe pharmacogenomics in our future world could help figure out why. My mom has uh, diabetes, but she developed it much later. My dad uh, had diabetes since he was 40. This is Anu Acharya, the founder and CEO of Map My Genome, a personal genomics company in Hyderabad. Both Anu's father and mother have type 2 diabetes. This is where your body is unable to regulate your blood sugar levels because it can't use or produce insulin efficiently. Like Anu's father, her mother was also started on metformin, a medicine that's commonly given to type 2 diabetes patients as the first line of treatment. So he was taking metformin perfectly fine, no, no problem for him at all. Um, when my mom started taking it and she was just diagnosed few years ago, uh, it was actually creating some form of a, you know, adverse effects. She was not improving her HbA1c at all. There was nothing going on. Um, so I looked at her profile and I showed it to her. Doctor. The profile Anu is referring to is her mother's genetic profile, and in that she could see that the genes that affect our body's response to metformin had a variation in her mother, and that variation suggested that the medicine might not be as effective in her as in many others. Then I showed it to her doctor, and she looked at it and she said basically, okay, let's maybe change her medication because it looks like you know, this is not reacting well. And I think since then, I think that has worked very well for her. So she stopped taking that medicine because of her genotype, and it started to work well for her. But that was because I'm, I was aware of the fact that you know that is a possibility, and her data was already with me, um, so I could I could look at it fairly quickly. But that's not usually the case today with most of us. At least in my experience, if a medicine I'm prescribed doesn't seem to be doing its job, I either continue to stick with it for some more time in the hope that maybe it will make me feel better tomorrow or day after. Or I go looking for another option. It's a lot of trial and error. Shambhavi, who we met earlier, has had a similar experience. People with allergic syndrome often struggle with severe itching because of their liver problems. A couple of years ago, the medicine she was taking to help with her itching wasn't bringing her any relief. She felt nauseous, exhausted, at battle with her skin. and she told her doctor about it and he said but this is the one like standard drug that we do prescribe even to children like at at, at a lower dose obviously so she turned to the internet and found another itching medication that seemed to be working better for some allergic patients i mean i'm not advising other people to do this but this is how it is in the rare community there's only so much that the medical professionals know there's only so much patients know somewhere in the middle there will be some solution that works for you so you end up being the person that advocates for yourself and finds that solution it is it is the unfortunate reality or fortunate reality as the case may be we have more agency in that sense this other medicine worked beautifully in shambhavi i didn't feel the nausea i didn't feel the exhaustion i didn't feel sleepy but i felt 
you know relief almost instantly she reported this to her doctor and she thinks is very strange i've never heard this before but i'm glad you told now i know that there is you know something else out there that might work as well um for different body types or for maybe you're the climate where you're living uh this particular drug is not interacting very well with that you know so there's so many variables to why a drug works or doesn't work for one person as shambhavi's doctor said there are many reasons why a medication might not work for you you might be allergic to it your environment could be a factor or you might be taking some other medicines that could be counteracting its effects but as researchers are finding out genes can play a role too although how big a role that is needs to be figured out in fact in our hypothetical future a genetic test could reveal why one itching medicine that works for you does not work for shambhavi just like anu used her mother's genetic profile to change her diabetes medication genetic testing in fact already determines the line of treatment for many cancers today decades of research has shown that two patients may have the same cancer say breast cancer but have tumors that behave very very differently because of variations in genes so i think precision medicine is already happening this is dr bhavna serohi a cancer specialist with expertise in breast and gastrointestinal cancers at the apollo proton cancer center in chennai a lot of uh, i would say advancements have happened in india you know a lot of companies have come up who are doing uh, what i would call whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing where they are doing 50 gene 500 gene 700 gene they're doing all these panels to try and find out what is driving the cancer and if we can find out what is driving the cancer and if we have a drug targeting that driver uh, which is what we hope for in every patient personalized medicine does not have to be limited to treating a disease or disorder we can use it to predict our health as well spit into a tube ship it off to a genetic testing company and find out if you are at risk of developing diabetes or heart disease maybe a clotting disorder or cancer This is already happening across the world. Map My Genome for instance also offers this service and calls its product Genome Patri. I think when we were just starting out I was trying to figure out what we could call the product right because what we are doing essentially is that we are helping people to to sort of correlate their family history their lifestyle with the genetic you know risk profile. um and the reason i called it genome patri was that i felt that was probably the closest that people can associate with with things that they already know um not that you know it was we are not doing astrology of any kind uh, but still a lot of people still call me saying that you know can you give me my genome patri but that's fine uh but the the real value that we thought that we'll provide to consumers was that you know we are looking at a vast number of genetic markers um you know whether it is understanding your uh, genetic health risk towards uh, complex diseases like diabetes cardiovascular and if you do know your risk of a future condition you might want to make changes in your lifestyle today to either prevent that condition or at least ensure that you prepare your future self for a better quality of life or you may not so what we help people to do is to essentially get an overall perspective in terms of your genetic risk profile uh but also counsel them in terms of you know what is it in your family history what is it in your lifestyle that you can maybe change so that your outcome is better and the hope really is that people will will change and most people do um some people don't you know take the report and keep it 
and do nothing. But I think majority of the people uh, do make changes in their lifestyle. But hold on. For our hypothetical future of personalized medicine to become a reality, there are many different pieces to the puzzle that need to be figured out first. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. It was way back in 2000 that Bill Clinton, the US president at the time, announced that the first ever draft of a sequenced human genome had been completed. It had taken more than a decade, collaboration between 20 institutions in six countries and more than 3 billion US dollars. Since then, costs of genome sequencing have fallen drastically. The cost of human genome project that cost a few billions, then even in 2011 was $100,000. I think today we are seeing it in, we are doing it in India for less than a lakh. Right. So the whole, even sequencing the whole genome, the genome patri and all have come down to a price point of less than, you know, we're we are starting off tests at five, six thousand rupees. I think it will still come down further. It's great news if genetic testing becomes affordable for many. But there will still be a fairly large population in India for whom the tests would be out of reach. A bigger problem, though, has to do with the data itself. To predict and diagnose diseases, genetic tests compare the variations in your DNA sample with reference genome samples in their database. You also need data from studies that have linked the variants seen across genomes with diseases or certain conditions. But much of the genomic data in the reference databases comes from white people of European ancestry. It's like trying to figure out meanings of Bengali, Kannada or Hindi words when all your reference dictionaries are in French. This is a problem because India has about 1.3 billion people and thousands of ethnic groups. And if all of us are not represented in the databases, and if we don't do the studies to figure out how variations in our genes influence what conditions we have, the results of genetic tests can have high uncertainty. And even if you do establish links between certain genetic variants and conditions in Indian populations, these associations won't be always absolute. The influence of your genes on your health can be modified by the effects of various things, like other medicines you might be taking, consumption of alcohol and tobacco, your lifestyle or other things in your environment. And so how these factors work together have to be figured out too. But as a start, there are efforts to map Indian genomes. There's the Indigen program funded by the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, which has sequenced the genomes of around 1,029 healthy Indian individuals under its pilot phase. Then there's the Genome India project, which the government approved in early 2020 and that aims to sequence the genomes of 10,000 Indians in its first phase. This project plans to quote-unquote map the diversity of India's genetic pool and lay the bedrock of personalised medicine. Researchers in India have also been doing some studies to link variants in Indian populations to different conditions. There are some very large cohort studies done in India. So it's not that there's been nothing done in, in India at all about it. Uh, but at the same time, I think there are some conditions for which you might not find anything, any information at all. And I think you know maybe those uh, areas are the ones that um, might need little more longer-term studies that uh, that will help us in understanding if our markers are different, if the frequencies of these markers available in the Indian population are different, and so on. Take cancer for example. Dr. Sirohi says that certain cancers might be uniquely more prevalent in India compared to the rest of the world. We are seeing so many women who are less than 40 who have breast cancer. 
And my perception is that uh, we see a lot of women who are triple negative, which is slightly more aggressive. What is the proportion of patients who are triple negative so that, you know, we can actually do research on uh, finding targets in triple negative breast cancer. But in gallbladder cancers, we found that, uh, you know, about 5% of patients express this protein, which is seen in breast cancer, HER2 protein. Uh, this hasn't been shown uh, anywhere in the world because they don't see enough of gallbladder cancers. So there are some cancers which are unique to India, like, you know, cervical cancer, head and neck cancer, uh, gallbladder cancer. But what's driving these cancers? What treatments work best for them? Dr. Sirohi says that these data are not available today. I think the first thing is we need to have good uh, electronic health records. And, you know, collect the data prospectively. So wherever I go, I create a prospective database. Uh, we learn from every single patient we see. So every single next generation sequencing or the sequencing that I do for a patient, we, we write down what we find. We also write down what else we have found. So that, you know, when the next patient comes in, we have learned from that patient to see, you know, what worked and what did not work. Researchers call these real-world databases. Our biology is different. Our population matrix is dif different. The way a patient responds who's from Guwahati is completely different from a way who from Punjab will respond. The biology is completely different. The type of cancers we see are completely different uh, in different parts of India. So I think we need to learn from the real-world databases. That is something we should do. There's also a need for well-designed clinical trials to learn whether matching a treatment to the genetic variant actually helps the patient, if it is indeed better or more cost-effective than the standard, more general treatments already available. Because, you know, I always say two things. For a patient, only two things matter. Living longer and having a good quality of life. So if you can't show in a trial that the patient is living longer or has a better quality of life and plus the financial toxicity. And uh, I had a patient recently who said, you know, I'll sell a cow every month. And, you know, we'll, we'll fund the immunotherapy. I have lots of cows. So that's not right because, you know, that, that I don't even know what advantage it would give him over simple chemotherapy, which is 20,000 or 40,000. Uh, so I think this is what we need to show in clinical trials. And uh, so I feel we are not there in the precision medicine yet. And I, and I really feel that. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, shouted down in various meetings. <laughs> even if we did generate the evidence, Who's keeping track of whether doctors are actually following evidence-based medicine? Just look at some of the prescriptions that have been written for COVID-19 today and you'll find many unnecessary medicines that are perhaps not needed for the patient at the stage they are in and may in fact do more harm. So if many doctors today don't follow evidence, will they tomorrow? And I'll just give you an example of UK. There is the General Medical Council, uh, Royal College of Physicians. There are two uh, bodies which actually uh, regulate the policies, the conduct and uh, uh, of the doctors uh, and the nurses have a different council as well. So And it is kind of hands-on uh, where there are guidelines and procedures and that is what is lacking significantly in India, the transparency and the accountability. Uh, today, I want to give a patient something, chemotherapy. There is nobody to ask me, you know, or peer review me. Why have you done that? Why have you not done that? Accountability aside, what a hypothetical future will also need are lots of good genetic counsellors. Someone who's trained in interpreting genetic data and will help you put your risk profile in context of your family history, 
lifestyle, nutrition and other conditions you might have because you are much more than your genes. In fact, given how unequal and discriminatory our society can be, good genetic counselors are critical. Take Duchenne muscular dystrophy for example. Research tells us that the disorder results from a mutation in the dystrophin gene that occurs on the X chromosome and the son inherits the X chromosome from his mother. This Bertie says is often hard to explain without a blame game. It's a very thin line trying to make someone understand uh, that yes it is excellent but that doesn't necessarily mean that the mother was responsible for the disease which is a very quick route to go for people who want to pass the blame. Right? And we go through a lot of uh, thinking process before telling your family that fact. Because we don't want it to be misread. There have been times when, yes, it has been misread and now it's a moral judgment we have to take whether we can tell the family what X-linked means. Because we don't want it to cause some mental trauma to the family. So that is another thing. Or consider a woman who carries the BRCA gene a mutation that puts her at a high risk of developing breast cancer in her lifetime. She can pass on this mutation to her children. So should she tell her partner about this? Should she get married? Should she have children? These are questions that a genetic counsellor can help navigate. But in general, there's a dearth of trained genetic counsellors in India, which means that doctors usually end up being one, something they might neither have the time nor the training for. Even in the NHS when I was in UK, we were very short of genetic counsellors. And they're extremely short of genetic counsellors in India. It's not like a 10-minute conversation. You need to spend an hour, sometimes two hours uh, with the patient uh, to understand and discuss all of that. Then there's the question of our genetic data itself, which needs to be spelled out in our regulations. Who owns my genetic sample? How is it stored? Can a genetic testing company or an institution sell our data to other companies? Will patients and consumers have the choice to opt out of their data being used for research or other purposes? Do we all get an electronic health card that has all our medical and genetic information, something that doctors and insurance companies can all access? As a lawyer and a rare individual, Shambhavi thinks about these questions a lot. I I guess one of the biggest concerns is uh, data protection in the sense that how do I trust a system that is built on portability, that is built on easy access, that is built on, uh, uh, you know, making making things simpler for people to take care of you. How do I trust a system like that to not be misused or to not be, you know, broken into or, you know, not to be monetized? So let's say you have 70 million now estimated people having rare diseases. Our genetic data, by very definition, will identify us. So there's no way to anonymize it in that sense. I mean, that's there are probably ways to do it, but in the sense that, you know, how do you how do you truly ensure that the data that's being collected won't be used against you at some point to discriminate against you for insurance, for example, higher insurance premiums, or to discriminate against you from getting a payout at all? You know, so th- these these harms are what concern me, and I think uh, with the with the personal data protection bill coming, some of that might get addressed, hopefully. Um, Also, I think we need a greater awareness of data protection. Of course, some of us could choose to not be a part of the databases if we are worried about our data being misused. But many people with rare genetic conditions might not have that luxury. Sharing genetic data could mean that maybe scientists would one day come up with solutions for their conditions. 
It's like how we now know that Facebook uses our personal data for a whole range of things, from targeted advertising to targeted propaganda. And so some of you may have deleted your Facebook accounts, but not everyone can or wants to. We don't have a choice right now. That's the only platform for patients like me to discuss and, you know, get answers to some very real time-sensitive and personal challenges. Like I have seen families post pictures and say, see, this is the issue that my child is facing. But what else do you do? You don't have any other source of information. It is the notice board. We know that Facebook monetizes our data. So where do you go? And so I, my my only issue with say a one centralized kind of system like this is identifying harms and educating the people operating the infrastructure of that system on what they can and cannot do and that I think will come with time as people get more digitally literate as people get more attuned to the idea that just because you have access to something you shouldn't use it you know you should use it only when absolutely necessary you know it, it, those those kind of sensitivities that aren't really tech related or that aren't really software related the human part of of the the whole ecosystem i think one until that gets trained we will always be a little you know worried about what happens to our data there will always be someone who wants to misuse our data data is profitable but the government can bring in regulatory protections that minimize such misuse the more important thing to consider is that people of india are not a monolith we are incredibly diverse so any future looking medical system must include all those from disadvantaged backgrounds and those whom the system looks through because the numbers are not on their side. Just because there are people who are going to misuse a system doesn't mean the rest of us should be left behind. I feel, at least from my personal perspective, newborn screening, uh, early diagnosis, uh, pharmacogenomics, tailoring the drug to my specific genetic makeup, I think that would have made a world of difference for me. Even now, like let's say something comes along now and I and I get a chance to try it. Even if it's a minuscule difference, it's the difference between concentrating for one hour on a legal document that I'm working on or sleeping. Like if it is even something as minute as that, I would take that chance. There are many of us who really need the help and who would appreciate it, who would not, you know, misuse it. So yeah, I, I, I know that risk is there. I know it is a very, um, I mean, you see it with female infanticide, you see it with so many other things. Uh, but I, I really don't think that the people who actually need it should be left behind because of, you know, human nature. This episode was created and hosted by me, Shreya Das Gupta. The intro and outro music is by Abhijit Shailanath. The episode was co-edited by Abhishek Madan. A big thank you to Bertie Ashley for his inputs and planting the idea for this episode. Since this podcast is brand new, I might experiment with the format a little in future episodes. If you have any suggestions or ideas on what futures we can explore, or any feedback or nice words for us, you can send me an email on imagined.tomorrow at gmail.com or you can get in touch on Twitter. That's all for this episode. See you again soon.